our hope this evening is mostly to be able to provide a little bit of space. Really to think about and to answer the question that started the video. What is so good about Good Friday? And there are about a hundred different ways that you can think about and talk about the benefits of the cross. If you've recently looked at a kaleidoscope, I don't know when the last time you did that. If you've got young kids, probably more recent than if you don't. But you look into the little viewfinder there, and as you spin it, just subtly, the picture continues to change. The colors shift. The way things line up changes. And the cross is a little bit similar in that we can look at the cross and talk about it in hundreds of different ways. We could spend tonight talking about the physical realities of the cross, the pain that Jesus endured in our place, the physical suffering that he underwent, and the picture that that paints for us of the judgment that we deserved that landed upon him. We could take this time and focus solely on the sort of eternal realities of the cross, that part of the judgment that fell upon Jesus is that in the moment that all of the sin was laid upon him, he experienced for the very first time in all of eternity separation from the Father. A type of pain that far outpaced what he was experiencing physically. We could talk about all of the spiritual ramifications of the cross. The fact that it's at the cross where we are justified, where we find redemption. And we could go on and on and talk about all of the various capacities of goodness that we can find in the cross. Tonight, what I want to do is to take just the next two sections in the Gospel of Luke, which we've been working through as a church, and then to be more reflective than instructive. Now, anytime we open the Word of God, I pray that we learn something. The Holy Spirit meets us in the middle of that and teaches something to our hearts. But my hope tonight is not to overwhelm our time together with just like an avalanche of verbiage, which I can be prone to do. Instead, I hope to take these two passages and just look to the cross and answer the question, what's so good about Good Friday? And so I'll read to you where it is that we've left off. Jesus has come into Jerusalem and he rides in on a donkey. He's weeping over the city. And then this is what we see. This is Luke 19, starting in verse 45. He went into the temple and began to throw out those who were selling. And he said, it is written, my house will be a house of prayer, but you have made it a den of thieves. Every day he was teaching in the temple. The chief priests, the scribes, and the leaders of the people were looking for a way to kill him, but they could not find a way to do it because all the people were captivated by what they heard. We're going to look at sort of like three different dimensions of the cross this evening. Three out of hundreds, like I've mentioned. But the first one is this, that at the cross, Christ consecrated our worship. Jesus comes into Jerusalem, and he goes immediately to the temple. The reason being that that is the center of basically all of Jewish life. 
Everything revolves around what happens at the temple. Worship happens there. Community life happened in its courts. Teaching happened there. The temple is the epicenter even of Jewish sort of civil government. And when Jesus gets there, he encounters a scene that he simply cannot stomach. There are people buying and selling in the courtyard of the temple. Now, remember, Jesus comes in during Passover. And so Jews from all around have come to Jerusalem and most likely they've got sacrifices or offerings that they need to make there at the temple. And so it wasn't uncommon for vendors to kind of set up in the courts so that rather than travel with your goat necessary for the sacrifice, you could just get yourself to Jerusalem and purchase it there. And so we're not told exactly, but it's most likely that what's happening there in the courts is that people are buying and selling the items necessary for worship at the temple. Animals for sacrifices, implements needed for offerings. It's not necessarily like souvenir stands. Like, hey, remember your trip to Jerusalem. Here's a mini temple. You could take it home with you. But what piques Jesus' anger in that moment is that the place where God is to be worshipped has instead become a place where money is idolized. The temple of Yahweh has been desecrated by what in a previous teaching Jesus calls the worship of mammon. And so he begins turning over the tables and he's running out the vendors. He consecrates that space, cleans it out, sanctifies it for worship, sets it apart as it was always intended to be. Now think forward about a week. Think forward to this night because the cross does this work in our heart. The human heart and the human soul were created to worship. We were made to adore and praise something. And when sin enters into the world, it means that we are prone to worship that which was not made to bear the weight of our worship. We're prone to worship created things rather than the creator. That's what Paul says. John Calvin says it this way, that the human heart is a perpetual idol factory. Translated a different way, the human condition is driven by idolatry. Calvin's point is that the human heart is predisposed to creating items to worship, things that we can praise and adore and give our lives to. We crank out lesser, unworthy items and images to worship all throughout our lives. And then, by God's grace, he leads us to the cross. We find mercy there. And at the cross, What Christ does is consecrate our worship. He reminds us that only he is truly worthy of our praise and adoration. The cross reminds us that no other God, no idol, no lesser thing has ever died on our behalf. No lesser thing has ever given itself on our behalf. Instead, those idols and those lesser gods, they only ever take from us, leading us to death. At the cross... Christ consecrates our worship, cleans it, purifies it, sanctifies it, sets it apart as it was always supposed to be. He lovingly chases out any lesser thing. We're told that it's not the anger of the Lord that leads us to repentance, but his kindness, his kindness displayed to us on the cross. 
And it is his patient but firm kindness that runs out the idols that lurk in the outer courts and sometimes the most inner places of our hearts. That picture of Jesus in the temple shooing out the vendors and flipping over the tables offers an image that we can put into our minds of what Jesus is lovingly doing in our hearts right now. Cleaning us, purifying us, sanctifying and consecrating the worship of our hearts until there's only one thing left, him. Just God, just the king and nothing else. But the process is not easy. The simple act of cleaning out the temple led the Pharisees to wanting to kill Jesus. That's verses 47 and 48. Every day he goes back into the temple and every day the chiefs are the chief priests and the scribes and the leaders of the people are looking for a way to kill him. And yet there he is, day after day, teaching in the temple. And no matter how many times our hearts turn and want to worship something lesser, there he is, day after day, patiently chasing out lesser things from our hearts. That act of consecrating our worship will absolutely cause friction. Our idols do not die without fighting. They are not crushed without resistance. And yet there is Jesus patiently persisting with us. We come to the cross on Good Friday with a thousand reasons to adore Jesus and what he did for us at Calvary and what he's doing for us now. And one of those is that he has consecrated our worship. He went to his death that we might no longer pursue those things that only lead to our own. He was crushed on the cross that the idols of our hearts might be crushed. He's turned our hearts to the only thing truly worthy of our soul's adoration and our praise, and that is himself. No other thing has given itself for you. No other thing is willing to go to its own death that you might have life. No other thing provides you with fullness at the expense of itself. Just Jesus. Hallelujah. What a savior. Now you get a little bit of foreshadowing here at the end of the passage. Every day, Jesus is teaching in the temple. And every day, the chief priests and the scribes and the leaders of the people were looking for a way to kill him. But it's not time yet here. And so Jesus keeps showing up to the temple. The chief priests and the elders and the scribes and the Pharisees keep showing up to oppose him because Jesus knows when and how this will come to an end for him. And it's not coming for an end, to an end as he's teaching in the temple. It's going to come to an end for him as he's praying in a garden. Jesus is going to go into the garden of Gethsemane and he is going to be praying there when one of the men closest to him will betray him. In fact, that is what sets into motion what we're here to celebrate tonight. Not chief priests wanting to find a way to kill him in the temple, but instead a close friend who turns Jesus over that he might be crucified on a hill outside of Jerusalem. One thing I want us to do tonight, even though we're sort of working our way through the gospel of Luke in a linear fashion, is that I want us to just hear scripture read over us. What is it exactly that happened to Jesus on this night a couple thousand years ago? 
And what happened to Jesus on this night a couple thousand years ago starts in a garden with a close friend. The Gospel of Luke, chapter 22, verse 1 through 6, says, The festival of unleavened bread, which is called Passover, was approaching. The chief priests and the scribes were looking for a way to put him to death because they were afraid of the people. Then Satan entered Judas, called Iscariot, who was numbered among the twelve. He went away and discussed with the chief priests and temple police how he could hand him over to them. They were glad and agreed to give him silver. So he accepted the offer and started looking for a good opportunity to betray him to them when the crowd was not present. And moving down to verse 47, while he, that is Jesus, was still speaking, suddenly a mob came and one of the 12 named Judas was leading them. He came near Jesus to kiss him. But Jesus said to him, Judas, are you betraying the son of man with a kiss? When those around him saw what was going to happen, they asked, Lord, should we strike with the sword? Then one of them struck the high priest's servant and cut off his right ear. But Jesus responded, no more of this. And touching his ear, he healed him. Then Jesus said to the chief priests, temple police, and the elders who had come for him, have you come out with swords and clubs as if I were a criminal? Every day while I was with you in the temple, you never laid a hand on me, but this is your hour and the dominion of darkness. I'm reading from the Gospel of Luke, chapter 23, verses 44 to 49. It was now about noon, and darkness came over the whole land until three, because the sun's light failed. The curtain of the sanctuary was split down the middle, and Jesus called out with a loud voice, Father, into your hands I entrust my spirit. Saying this, he breathed his last. When the centurion saw what had happened, he began to glorify God, saying, This man really was righteous. All of the crowds that had gathered for this spectacle, when they saw what had taken place, went home, striking their chest. But all who knew him, including the women who had followed him from Galilee, stood at a distance, watching these things. Slippy. You guys better be careful singing hymns that loud. We'll be doing hymn sings. Amen. That was awesome. There's something physical that happens at the death of Jesus that makes this a good Friday. And this next passage that we're going to look at actually foreshadows it. Libby just read it. Luke chapter 20 verses 1 and 2 says this. One day when he was teaching the people in the temple and proclaiming the good news, the chief priests and the scribes with the elders came to him and said, tell us by what authority you are doing these things. Who is it that gave you this authority? One of the great glories of the cross is that at the cross, Christ procured for us access to God. It's what Libby just read, that this veil in the temple tears in half. Now, Exodus 26 talks about what that veil looked like. Initially, it was in the tabernacle, then they put it in the temple. It's blue and purple and scarlet yarn, finely twisted all together. There's 
skilled handy workers that were supposed to uh, create in that curtain the image of a cherubim. And it hangs between the more open areas of the temple or the tabernacle and this back secluded area, the Holy of Holies, where the presence of the Lord dwells. And it hangs there in order to stop an ordinary, unconsecrated person from wandering into the presence of perfectly holy God. Now that's not primarily a means of putting this curtain there so as to not offend God. It is literally to protect the ordinary person from wandering into there and being struck dead in their sin by the holiness of God. At Jesus's death, that veil tears in two. And that means that ordinary people made righteous by grace through faith in Christ now have direct access to God. There is nothing that separates us from him. We don't stand far off. We're not separated. Access to God is not for special people wearing special clothes on special days. Brothers and sisters, access to God is for you because when Christ went to the cross and his body was broken, the veil was torn. Now, where is that in this passage? One day as he was teaching the people in the temple and proclaiming the good news, it's, it's tucked right in there. Jesus is teaching in the temple and it's wildly offensive to the Pharisees and the scribes and the elders because he's proclaiming the good news, literally the euangelion. He's evangelizing people in the temple before his death, proclaiming forgiveness of sin that has nothing to do with the animals that they came to sacrifice. That's what he's been doing all throughout his ministry, forgiving sin, forgiving sin apart from the traditional sacrificial religious practices of the Jewish faith. Jesus has cleaned and he's consecrated the temple and that angered the priest. And now he's preaching in the temple that the practices associated with it are no longer necessary for drawing near to God. And that really ruffles feathers. It's ultimately the death of Jesus at the cross, his work on our behalf that rips the curtain, the curtain and makes his teaching reality. You have access to God. You need not come in here and bring a sacrifice. You don't need me to stand before you, before God, and intercess on your behalf. You've got an intercessor at the right hand of God right now whose body was broken, who tore the veil, and now you, brothers and sisters, are the holy dwelling place of the Lord. That is the glory of the cross. Like we come here tonight to worship and to celebrate. And why is Friday good? Because you didn't have to come in here with an animal to slaughter. You did not have to come in here and have me slaughter the animal on your behalf. You walked in as the holy dwelling place of the Lord because Christ at the cross procured access for you to God. But there's one other piece of this. Verse three in chapter 20. The Pharisees ask, what authority do you have to do these things? And he answers them, I'll ask you a question. And tell me, was the baptism of John from heaven or of human origin? They discussed it among themselves. If we say from heaven, he will say, why didn't you believe him? But if we say of human origin, all the people will stone us because they are convinced that John was a prophet. So they answered that they did not know its origin. And Jesus said to them, neither will I tell you by what authority I do these things. The last aspect of the cross for us to celebrate tonight is that at the cross, Christ declared his authority. 
the priests and the elders and the scribes, they want to trap Jesus. So they ask him, where did you get this authority? Because if he doesn't have any, then the conversation is over. Please leave Jesus of Nazareth. And if he claims it comes from heaven, then he's making a claim that at the very least he's a prophet and potentially at the most he's being blasphemous. But Jesus will not be trapped yet, not now. It is in time. And so he returns their question by asking one of his own. Well, where did John the Baptist get his authority? And that pins the Jewish leaders down. They can't claim that he got it from heaven because they didn't receive John the Baptist as a prophet. They were glad that he was killed. And if he had authority from heaven, then they look really bad. And they also can't claim it was of human origin or else the people who loved and revered John the Baptist will overrun them. And so they opt for saying, we don't know. So Jesus says, well, then I suppose I don't have to tell you where I get mine. But he's going to declare that authority. He is going to scream that authority from the cross with a mocking sign above his head. King of kings. King of the Jews. He's had that authority from all of eternity. He's marshaled it throughout his ministry. And on the cross, he will declare that authority one last time. And there is all of this wild stuff that happens at Jesus's death. A criminal on one side of him is assured of eternity in heaven. It goes dark at noon. There's an earthquake that rumbles through the area. The veil is torn. We're told in the gospel of Matthew, these are not my words, they are Matthew's, that tombs open and dead people are raised, which I have a million questions about, but Matthew says that it happens. What's going on in all of that? The king is displaying himself to be king. These are the things that he has done all throughout his ministry, and now he does them at his death. Like, this man's not even alive anymore. And he's controlling nature. He's forgiving someone's sin. He's raising people from the dead. Jesus doesn't tell the authority or the leaders where his authority comes from because he's going to declare it from the cross. And literally everything around him is going to scream that into the world. Where does Jesus get the authority to consecrate our worship, to procure our access to God, to forgive our sin, to wash away our iniquity, to raise us to life and every other benefit he sends to us? He gets it at the cross where he goes willingly to die in our place. Why is Friday so good? Well, it's because of Good Friday that our worship is consecrated. It's because of Good Friday that we not only have access to God, but we have a living God dwelling inside of us. And it is because of Good Friday that we recognize the authority of the King. Amen? Amen. You've got a little communion cup there with you. We're going to do this a little bit differently than maybe we normally would. You're going to get just some time to reflect on your own. I, I want to encourage you, maybe Jesus has some cleaning out to do of the idols in your heart. Like he needs, you know that he needs to chase some things out of your heart that you are worshiping. I would encourage you to do some business with the Lord in prayer over that before you take this. Maybe you just want to sit here for a few moments and enjoy the simple pleasure of your access to the Lord. Like he dwells inside of you. He is here with us tonight. And maybe you just want to spend a few minutes quietly enjoying that presence. Maybe 
afresh this evening, you need to submit yourself to Christ's authority over some aspect of your life. Maybe you want to spin the kaleidoscope, so to speak, and reflect on another aspect of Jesus's crucifixion. But this is the body in the blood of Christ. The body broke in on Good Friday, the blood poured out on Good Friday. 2,000 years later, we gather as the Lord's people and we reflect on this act. When we're together, but in a special way on Good Friday. So you're just gonna have some time. Uh, The band's not rushing up here right now to start into the next song so we don't have to endure any awkward silence. We're gonna endure the awkward silence in the presence of the Lord. Spend some time. Take this when you're ready. If you wanna pray with someone that you came with, that's great. If you wanna do some business with the Lord on your own and then take this kind of quietly by yourself, that's totally fine too. You're gonna have some space and then we'll enter back in to worship together before we close out our evening. I wanna close by just reading Isaiah 53 over us. It's written a couple thousand years before Jesus, but it's as if this could have been written on this night a couple thousand years ago. Who has believed what we have heard? And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? He grew up before him like a young plant and like a root out of dry ground. He didn't have an impressive form or majesty that we should look at him, no appearance that we should desire him. He was despised and rejected by men, a man of suffering who knew what sickness was. He was like someone people turned away from. He was despised and we didn't value him. Yet he himself bore our sickness and he carried our pains. But we in turn regarded him stricken, struck down by God and afflicted. But he was pierced because of our rebellion, crushed because of our iniquities. Punishment for our peace was on him and we are healed by his wounds. We all went astray like sheep. We have all turned to our own way and the Lord has punished him for the iniquity of all of us. He was oppressed and afflicted, yet he did not open his mouth. Like a lamb led to the slaughter and like a sheep silent before her shearers, he did not open his mouth. He was taken away because of oppression and and judgment. And who considered his fate? For he was cut off from the land of the living. He was struck down because of my people's rebellion. He was assigned a grave with the wicked, but he was with a rich man at his death because he had done no violence and had not spoken deceitfully. Yet the Lord was pleased to crush him severely. When you make him a guilt offering, he will see his seed. He will prolong his days and by his hand, the Lord's pleasure will be accomplished. After his anguish, he will see light and be satisfied. By his knowledge, my righteous servant will justify many and he will carry their iniquities. Therefore, I will give him the many as a portion and he will receive the mighty as spoil because he willingly submitted to death and was counted among the the rebels. Yet he bore the sin of many and interceded for us all. What's so good about Good Friday? Everything we just sang. He is help for the hopeless, author, maker of everything, redeemer, Messiah, the King of Kings. He is, he is, amen? Amen, we will see you on Sunday morning. It's been a pleasure to worship with you. Have a great couple of days. It's Friday, but Sunday's coming.